turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you don't have it, you're, there's a bulletin insert with the text on it. It's important for us to remember as we um, study the pastoral letters, particularly First and Second Timothy, that um, the church in Ephesus, or the churches in Ephesus, had been torn apart by false teaching. Uh, and that false teaching, of course, was coming from some of those who were in leadership. It was coming from the eldership. Timothy has been charged with putting the church in Ephesus back together with the truth of the deposit, the good doctrine that had been handed down to him by Paul and the apostles from Jesus Christ. And so um, the existence of the pastoral letters are meant to help us understand how important biblical leadership is to the church of Jesus Christ and therefore uh, the spread of the gospel. Confidence had to be restored in the leadership in Ephesus. Faithful elders needed to be distinguished from the unfaithful ones. And what we learn is that both the unity and the mission of the church depend on that. And the Bible, the church, has never given instructions for behavior or its structure in a vacuum. Right? It's never just because all the guidelines that come to us in Scripture are because of who God is and the heart that he has to save sinners. And so by that we understand that we do not exist for ourselves. We exist for the gospel. We exist for the mission, which is a mission to proclaim the truth about salvation to the world. When we lose sight of that in our practice or even in our structure, when we become obsessed with ourselves and our opinions and our preferences and our traditions or by things like unbiblical speculation or teaching on self-denial or selfish forms of church structure that just feed the flesh, we will compromise both our identity and our mission. So Paul gives instructions regarding elders so that faithful ones would be properly cared for by the church and chosen to rule the body. He also gave instructions regarding those in the church who were slaves so that the name of God And the teaching of the church would not be reviled by the greater community. That is the priority. God's instructions for the church exist so that all its members may be properly cared for. And so the value of his name and his truth will not be compromised. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your name. And Lord, I pray that for your name's sake, for your son, for your people whom you love and care for, that you would rule over my mind and my mouth in these moments to come. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 17 and 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. He writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So the first thing this section does is teach the church how it is to care, how the church is responsible to care for faithful elders, the overseers from Chapter 3, verse 1. If you remember, this is how the Bible describes the office we refer to as pastor. The elders are a group of qualified men in the church, according to Scripture, who shepherd the flock of God after God's own heart as overseers, protectors, examples, and the authoritative proclaimers of His Word. And Paul says that those who do this well are to be considered worthy of double honor. The text has been talking about honor that is due to widows, qualifying widows. Now, he speaks of the elders and he talks about double honor. Now, as your pastor, as an elder, I, I, I don't want any of this to sound self-serving. All right, it, it's, So I'm just going to try to teach it objectively. First of all, in this text, notice that there is obviously more than one elder in a church. It's the first thing that we see here, at least ideally. And obviously what the text is showing is that pastoral duties are distributed among them. All the elders together are called to rule in the church. 
And those who do that well are worthy of double honor, but especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, which means there are elders for whom the public ministry of the word is not their main task or their main priority. Their, uh, that will not be the main task or labor of all the elders, but only of one or some of them. And these elders are especially worthy of double honor, and we'll get to what that means in just a minute. But just so we pick up on that first here, eldership is ideally meant to be plural, more than one person, more than one qualified man. We can responsibly assume as we read that the church, that the church must need a plural eldership to be ruled well in the first place. We need a group of qualified men with various gifts so that the various needs of the church can best be served. And Paul is letting us know that this type of service is, is to be held in double honor by those inside the church who are benefiting from the service of these men. Secondly, in this text, elders rule. That word has a very specific meaning, doesn't it? We only use it when we want to convey a certain idea. To rule is not to simply advise or propose things. It's to be in charge. That's what rule means. It carries authority that isn't granted to anyone else. So it is the elders that rule the church. It's not the deacons. It's not a board of any kind. It's not the congregation. And this word and its implications, rule, are used to describe the elders' authority throughout the pastorals. Paul tells Timothy to command things. He tells him to teach things. He tells him not to let Anyone look down on him for being young. He tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, exhort. He tells Titus later to teach and rebuke with all authority and to let no one disregard him. The elders rule the church with oversight to ensure that the church stays faithful to the truth in its doctrine, its behavior, and its structure. But notice, this must be done well. Not selfishly, not with a domineering spirit, not harshly, not abusively, not in a manipulative way. Double honor belongs only to those who rule well, which means faithfully, lovingly, consistently. We have a hint as to what double honor means from the context of chapter 5 so far and how it speaks to honor, meaning recognition and financial support for widows. Now, double honor doesn't mean double money but does mean monetary support and the special respect and recognition of the church. Now, very quickly, much like last week, this is not something our church is failing in. That's not why I'm preaching it. This church takes very good care of my family and I financially. I know that's a little awkward to talk about, but you do. We're very thankful for that. I have nothing to complain about. I don't feel on the other side of Honor. I don't feel dishonored or disrespected in any way as the preaching pastor here. So none of this is corrective for you. That's not why we're talking about it. We just want to learn the text together. The text says that double honor is owed, especially to those. So double honor is due to all the elders, but especially to those, those that rule well, that is, but especially to those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, Paul's rationale for Financially supporting preaching pastors is rooted in scripture here, which, as we'll see in a moment, also includes the words of Jesus. But first, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 25, 4 and verse 18. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So the image when oxen were being used for work in a field, they weren't to be muzzled while doing it. So as they treaded out grain, of course, their feet are heavy. Kernels from the stalks would be thrown out and the oxen would eat that as they were treading the law prohibited farmers from muzzling the oxen to keep them from eating while they were working. That would be unjust, right? You should be able to eat from the work you're doing, even if you're an ox. Paul uses that text to argue from the lesser to the greater here, as he does elsewhere. If, if you wouldn't muzzle an ox for eating grain while it worked in the field, don't muzzle, that is, here, refuse to pay an elder for plowing the word in the field of the church's hearts. Now, he had used this rationale earlier to the church in Corinth, even though, by the way, Paul himself would not take money for it. But he writes in 1 Corinthians 9, 7 through 12, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? 
Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So in Corinth, there was a, a refusal to support preaching pastors. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others have this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So because the preaching of the word is considered sowing the seed of truth in the hearts of God's people, monetary compensation is the preacher's reaping of that work. But beloved, so long as it is Work, or at least should be work. So I don't sit and wait for impressions from above. I don't sit around all week and go off feelings I have or something that really caught my eye or I have to work. I'm supposed to work to understand a text in such a way that I can preach it, right? That's, that's a different way of, of understanding a passage. You have to understand it in such a way that you can preach it to other people so that they understand it. That's supposed to be work from me. Paul speaks of those elders who labor in preaching and teaching, not just those who do that. Not And, and again, he's not speaking of, of those elders whose shepherding does not keep them from being able to work outside the church. In other words, if you're going to pay a preaching elder... What's being expected there in that exchange is that he will be given so much to the study of the word and prayer that he won't have time to hold down a job that could support his family. Presumably other elders that don't have the responsibility of preaching and teaching the word do have the time to hold down a paying job and are still able to shepherd. And so that's why the preaching elder is worth uh, especially worthy of double honor because his labor is preaching and teaching. That's Paul's point here. Again, I want to stress to you, it's because of his labor. It's not because of his title. Right? God doesn't do that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's because he is required to toil in this. He's required to work hard in this. It's a, from God's perspective, it's another kind of labor that a man can do. Sometimes I get asked, or I, I hear people say, you know, jokingly, which I, I, that doesn't bother me. I just, it, it's, Something that you can hear is, is, why do you spend so much time studying in your office? Well, you're seeing it here. One reason is, I need to earn my pay. Right? I, I'm, that is required of me. I'm, I'm supposed to do that. That's my job. My pay is earned biblically, according to the Bible, by laboring in the Word. That's the only reason you pay, actually, the preaching pastor. I'm required to rightly divide the word for you week after week, every single time we gather. That is supposed to be a labor. So Paul quotes Jesus also to back this up in Luke 10.7, which is what he's quoting, which meant, by the way, that by the time the apostles were writing their letters, the gospel of Luke was considered sacred-inspired scripture. That's very interesting here. But it's the scripture in which Jesus said the laborer deserves his wages. So the church is called to financially support faithful elders, especially the ones who labor in preaching and teaching, right? As most churches can't financially support a entire group of elders, the Bible gives us a, a priority here. And it's also called by the words double honor. So, so pay is included, yes, but this appropriate recognition and respect of those that hold the office, which is why you would hear Paul say to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example, because that's a that's a serious thing. If a younger man in a church to be paid and supported by older people in a church, he needs to earn that. Right? You, you don't just you need to earn the respect. You need to earn the recognition, earn the money. Right. The Bible is very clear about this. And beloved, all this is here to sustain a relationship between us, not to lift me up or the elders up, but to sustain a relationship between us. As I labor to feed you the word, you labor to take care of me, right? And by extension, my family. If I don't labor well in the preaching ministry of the word, you are not obligated to support me. That's how serious 
the text is. This is one of the reasons why, then, it's so important to keep the church streamlined and not bogged down by too many things. The more that I'm responsible for dealing with, or the more the elders have to oversee, the less likely it is they can stay focused on the things they need to be focused on. Ephesus was suffering because the elders were not staying focused on the truth. Things like this exorbitant care of widows. They had been doing so many widows, so many responsibilities. This is drawing the out. That's why he flows from one right into another. Things like that bog the elders down in things that they aren't meant to be doing. And the church is going to suffer for it. It damaged the relationship. It destroyed mutual trust. So now it seems those elders that did deserve financial support were not getting it. It also seems as obviously some elders aren't ruling well. When we submit ourselves fully to the word of God, we will encourage and help one another. We'll care for one another. We'll build each other up. So ruling well is related to what God requires of the church, not what we create for pastors to do or just wish they would do. And we don't want to create too much for the elders to rule. We want to keep them focused on the things that God has given to the church. Beloved, this is for our mutual benefit. Remember, that's how the scripture argues. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so the Bible is teaching us that there's a way we serve one another by obeying the Bible's structure. So there were some faithful elders in the church at Ephesus who hadn't been compromised by false teaching, who were worthy of double honor, but there were others who weren't, as we find in reading here. This called for caution because those elders needed to be disciplined, but because of the Honor due to the elders over all, that needed to be done very carefully, as Paul is instructing Timothy. Look at verses 19 and 20. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, given the situation in Ephesus, tempers were probably pretty high. One of my commentaries was talking about maybe there had a purge mentality had set in among those that resisted the false teachers. And so you have one group saying, look, get rid of all the elders. Let's start over. And or maybe those influenced by the false teaching were plotting to get the faithful elders that were standing against the false teaching out of the church. And so you just had this mess going on. And so Paul gives objective instructions with which to address all the elders in the church. And the first thing to consider is that there needs to be admissible evidence. A church or a person or a group of people in the church are not to take seriously an accusation against an elder unless there is the evidence of at least two, preferably three, witnesses. Elders, why why would this be there? Because elders that are doing their job faithfully are going to be resented by people who resist the word of God. And unfortunately, sometimes people will go to very malignant and evil lengths to get them out or to ruin their reputation. Sometimes, sometimes elders are 100% guilty of what they're being accused of. But that's one way a, a person could get their way, isn't it? If they were angry with an elder, they could just say, well, I saw this or I said this. And so this, this happened to me in... Brawley, two different times that were so um, serious, I had to address it from the pulpit. And so I'll tell you one of those, because the other one is still too miserable to talk about for me. But I was accused, it comes back to me that there were people in the church that were saying, I had been in a party the night before and had gotten completely drunk and was so drunk that they had to carry me out to my car. Now, I'm telling you, beloved, never in my life, I'm a sinner but I've never been carry me out to the car drunk. I've never been drunk. I've never, I just, I don't like the taste enough to drink it long enough to get drunk. That's just me. I'm not trying to be pious. I'm saying I just, it's so far out of the realm of what I would be doing. And again, I'm a sinner. It's not like, how dare you accuse me of sin? It's, it's, 
But that was going around and people were starting to talk and it was starting, I, I was, you have to understand, I was deeply disliked anyway. Okay, I just was. And so that made it, and so what, what do I do? What do I do? So I got up on a Sunday morning before I started my sermon and I said, okay, this is what's being said. These are the details. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to give any of you five minutes, ten minutes to bring whatever evidence you have, whether it's pictures, whatever. We'll show it on the screen. Just any evidence you have that I did this and I'll sit and I'll wait. And I sat down. Nobody came forward. Nobody said anything. There was no evidence. I didn't have anything to worry about. But did I do that just from a personal standpoint to save face? No, I did it because the Bible gives me a way to address that. It was an accusation. It was a serious accusation. If, if an elder's out getting drunk and being carried out to his car, he's not fit for the office of elder. And so all kinds of, but I mean, that's an interesting thing because the other one was so rough and it, your, your kids get involved in it. They, they, you know, you have to sit down with your family and say, look, I didn't do this. And so, but the Bible is trying to protect elders from false accusations because this office means that sometimes you have a target on your back. And again, it's an occupational hazard, and we all have those. It's, the pastor's not unique and special because there are things he has to deal with. Every person in here that works has things unique to their career, right? I'm just saying what the Bible does is address it for the sake of elders. And so here, the deal is the evidence of two or three witnesses before you even take seriously a charge. And so because God knows, Paul knows that this is what some people will do to get people to doubt a man's fitness for leadership, to question him, to destroy him. This kind of thing happens all the time or could happen at any time. And so the Bible has addressed it. The church has to have the wherewithal to be patient and investigate. The elders are charged with substantiating any accusation against an elder with the evidence of two or three Witnesses. So he said, she said, just, just doesn't have any authority in the church. That's not the way we run. We are not a moose lodge. We're not a VFW. We're not a club. We're a church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. If it is revealed that the elder is guilty now, which is very possible in verse 20, or if an elder refuses to repent of ongoing sin, he must be rebuked in front of the whole congregation. So that the other elders and really the whole church will be so afraid of that kind of exposure, they won't fall into the same sins. There is a time for fear in the church. And it's when an elder has sinned, causing a serious rebuke that is felt by the whole church. In other words, Timothy, do this in such a way that everybody thinks twice about their sinful behavior. The whole church. With authority, then comes responsibility, beloved. Which is why the Bible never allows for authority in the church without responsibility and accountability. That's never the case. That you can have leadership, but you don't have to be uh, responsible for anything. Never. That will kill a church. That's a worst case scenario for a church. No one has authority in the church because of their name or their longevity, or the amount of money they give. Again, it's a church. This is a church. No one buys influence here. So the only authority in the church under Jesus himself has been granted to those who are charged with the ongoing responsibility of shepherding oversight. That's why you would get this care and this benefit of the doubt, because you're laboring at shepherding the body, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, Authority in the church is something that's earned through an elder's labor, not through a last name or an amount of money given in the offering or one's attendance or something. God is protecting the church here, everybody in it from both slander and immorality. Sometimes the time to be nice is over and the church has to stand firm. Look at verse 21 at how serious this is. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels... I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So that's who's called to witness to whether or not a church and its eldership are faithful in these things. That's who's watching. God himself, 
Christ Jesus, his son, and those angels that have not joined with Satan in his rebellion. The elder shepherd underneath their ever watching eye. So none of these things, not the discipline and correction or the selection of elders can be done irresponsibly, hastily, or with favoritism, partiality. Prejudging elders or a situation before we have all the facts is not permitted. We do not judge by appearances, but with right judgment. That's Jesus speaking in John 7. And the elders can't do anything from partiality either. It's not a good old boys club. It's not, well, I like this guy, so we're going to take it easy on him. We can't do that. This is a solemn thing, beloved. And the men called to it must have patience, courage, integrity, and consistency. In other words, the Bible could not be more clear about how much prayer the elders need to be faithful. Verses 22 to 25. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That's a quote from the Bible. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So, For a group of elders to lay hands on a man, commission him to be an elder. That looks back to 4.14. And the fact that an elder is commissioned to the office by the council of the current elders in the church, laying hands on him, ordaining him to this office, to do that for a man. Before they have given sufficient time for his fitness for the office to be properly and objectively evaluated means you do that hastily, or with partiality, before you should, and you put him in the office of elder and he sins, all the elders that laid hands on him are responsible for it also. So Paul says to Timothy, with that in mind, don't play favorites. Don't judge by appearances. Don't refuse to be faithful. Timothy, keep yourself pure. So imagine just imagine that Timothy's a young man and he's in charge of all of this. And all of this is falling on him. All of this is going to, it's not going to drive him again to the mirror to flex his muscles. It's going to drive him to his knees to beg for the strength of Christ to do it. It all keeps coming to him. Make sure you remain innocent in the matter of taking part in other sins because you did not go through the necessary steps to ordain a man. In verses 24 and 25, Paul is telling him that the process to ordain a man to eldership then takes time. It just takes time. It cannot be rushed for any reason. Again, it's better to have no elders or even just one elder than it is to have the wrong elders. Eldership is only beneficial if the elders are qualified and faithful. If they aren't, it's a disaster for the church. As much as the disaster it is when a simple numerical majority is what rules the church, carnality will reign supreme in both cases. Paul tells him that with some people you'll know right away if they're unfit in verse 24. It will be so obvious. Their lives will reveal it very quickly. Like if you were considering a guy for eldership and you saw him being dragged out of a house, carried, drunk to his car, he's probably not ready yet. He's got some things to address. Well, there are others, Paul says, whose sins are more calculated. In other words, their sins are less obvious. It will take time for it to be revealed. Right? Timothy must take his time. And the elders must truly get to know a man before he can be given the office of elder. And Paul says in verse 25, the the same principle is true, on the other hand, for good works. Those will be obvious and visible also. In fact, good works are so powerful in the body of Christ that even the quiet ones, the hidden ones, have a way of being known. In other words, Timothy, what are his instructions? Watch, young man, be patient, be consistent, be aware, be faithful. The office of elder is one of the most serious offices in all of Scripture. Jesus does not want the oversight of his church in the hands of unqualified or lazy men. 
They are unfit to care for his bride. That's what we're hearing. Don't get, hear the details, follow them, submit to them, but don't get bogged down by them. What are we hearing here? How passionately Christ cares for his church in these things. By the way, did you notice that little editorial note in parentheses in verse 23? Here's how, by the way, here's evidence of how authentic these letters really are. These are real, this was a genuine letter to this young man. Timothy apparently has some ascetic tendencies. And Paul's concern is that it will compromise his integrity as an elder. Right, Timothy, I, I know that you've decided you won't drink anything but water. Right, Just think of the, what the letters told us so far. But your stomach needs more than that. And remember chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. So Paul knows that Timothy is day and night anxious, stomach ache. But all Timothy will drink is water. And Paul says, you need to use a little wine. It's not a sin. It will help your stomach. It won't hurt you. Drink it. You need it. Paul does not want this young man compromised by the false teachers and their teaching about asceticism and self-denial and don't have this and don't have that. He doesn't want Timothy compromised by that at all. He doesn't want him through his habits and choices even making it look as though self-denial is the way that one proves how righteous he is. So Timothy, bite the bullet and drink some wine for your stomach. He's not telling him to get drunk. See, and here's what happens. Why did that rumor, to go back to that thing, why did that start? Because I had preached that it's not a sin outright to have alcohol. So there were people in the church that said, I know what we'll do. We'll make it look like he's a drunk. Well, I, like I said, I have plenty of vices that... Booze, this isn't one of them. It's sour. It's gross. I mean, it's fine. But the idea here is you can have a little bit. Calm your stomach down, Timothy. And wine is better at that than water is. And you need to have a calm stomach because Ephesus is a mess. And you need to be able to face what you need to face. That's very powerful. The office of elder is not a high calling because the men that are ordained to it are so important and so pure and so great. It's... It's a high office because Jesus has prescribed it as the office of those that have oversight and authority of his people in his church. And even the habits of his life that will compromise the message of free salvation cannot be allowed to continue. There's never a reason to brag about your convictions. You ever thought about that? There's never a reason for other people to know things that you choose to take very seriously Unless you are convinced they need to take it very seriously too. And then elders become domineering and heavy handed. And no, the Bible doesn't say you can't do this, but I don't do it because who asked? Who asked? Right? This is what, hear what he's saying here. You need to be free to have some wine because you need a calm stomach. You don't need to be compromised by self-denial to me. That's not what we're about. The church needs to see free elders and happy elders who are not constrained by even a hint of legalism. These verses reveal the need for the elder's labor, his respectability, right? Again, that has to be earned, we rule well, his objectivity, his integrity, and his focus. All of that is extremely difficult when you're dealing with people and personalities, And so as much as this is a call for how to structure the church, it is a call also implicitly to pray for elders, to pray for them to be faithful. This is for the church and the church is the place and people on the earth who proclaim the gospel. That's why it has instructions that cover every single group that existed at this time in particular. That's why you have six, one through two. Let's look at that quickly. He says, let all who are under a yoke as bond servants, the word is doulos, it's slaves, Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That, that We're finding there, that's the theme of these instructions. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. 
Um, I, without diving, well, let me say a few things about this, just, just so we, because slavery is a difficult issue. It's estimated there were between 50 to 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at this time. As many as one-third of the people in large cities such as Rome or Corinth or Ephesus were slaves. As many as one-third of them. That means, think about what that means for the church. It is very likely, obviously, that in the same church body, you would have slaves and slave owners, masters. You would have ex-slaves. Those were called freedmen. They'd earn their freedom, gain their freedom. Then you'd have citizens who own no slaves, meaning they were much poorer probably than many in the congregation. Slavery affected every aspect of church life. right? So you can't just make a jump from 6, 1, and 2 to so be good in your job. This is talking about slavery. right? You aren't a slave to your employer. It may feel like it at times for you, I'm sure. But understand, technically speaking... It's nothing like slavery, right? It's nothing like what Paul is talking about here. It's important to realize, though, that by the time this letter was written, slavery and its exploitation of people was was on decline in the Roman Empire in the time of this letter. It was on decline. There were major changes being introduced at this time, and so um, that radically improved the treatment of slaves, but they were still slaves. That it, it, We need to be careful trying to paint that as though it was a... You were, you were still a slave. Uh, slave owners were releasing slaves at such a fast rate during this era that Augustus Caesar, if you remember him, introduced legislation to slow it down. Uh, almost 50% of slaves were freed by the age of 30. A slave was the possession of his or her master, but they could own property. Slaves could even own their own slaves. A slave had complete control of his own property. He could invest Saved to be able to purchase one's own freedom, him or her. There were ex-slaves who had enough wealth in the empire that they were actually like an embarrassment to old money Romans. They have all these former slaves running around with money now. They think they're a part of us. So it was a very big social dynamic. Slaves normally carried the social status of their masters. So they weren't always socially excluded. If their master was a big deal, they were a big deal. A slave could be a custodian, a merchant, a CEO... They could even at times hold government office. Many slaves even lived separately from their owners. And it was often the case that people would sell themselves into slavery on purpose so that they could gain Roman citizenship and entrance into that society. In other words, Roman slavery in the first century was far more humane and civilized than slavery, chattel slavery was in our history in America. They are not the same. This doesn't mean Roman slavery wasn't also evil. It was. The buying and selling of people for your own well-being is problematic to say the least, right? And even Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.21 that if you can gain your freedom, do it. But this does help us understand why the biblical writers don't attack slavery out of hand. It's largely because at this time, it's not what it was as we generally know it to be. It's very much different than what we saw or read about in our history. But you can tell in part by what Paul does write about it that Christianity was not interested in being a subversive movement in Roman culture. Notice that. Right? That, that's, they don't want to put themselves or the church on the radar with Rome. And the American church could take a lesson from that today. It's actually our goal not to be noticed. By the government, by the powers that be. Why? Because the gospel is more important than our national status, beloved. The church planted by the apostles was not overly interested in social reform. You don't read about that. And the Roman Empire was as pagan and immoral as you can get. Caligula makes most politicians today look like happy little school children. The Roman Empire was horrible to people. Spiritual reform, salvation, these were the priorities for the church. The gospel apparently has so much power to change people's hearts that if you just trust that, things like slavery will begin to be addressed as people come to Christ. So we focus on that mainly as the church of Jesus Christ. When Paul writes these things to Ephesus, we realize then that 
you apparently had slaves and freedmen and slave masters as a large part of the congregation there. He addresses this as a topic in his letter. So you can imagine the book of Ephesians has even more instructions regarding slaves, which was also to the church in Ephesus. So you can imagine the tension this could create, this issue in the churches there. Some slaves probably had Christian masters and were in the same house groups. Others probably came from homes with non-Christian masters. Some of the elders might have been slave owners, like Philemon was at the church in Colossae. Well, in light of the gospel, what are we learning? That they're all equal brothers and sisters now. They're all one in Christ Jesus. Now imagine how hard it would have been in that context to adjust to this new life with all of the implications of being in Christ. Yes, I'm your master. Yes, I'm your slave. But we're also not a master or a slave and are one in Christ and owe each other honor all the time. Thus the instructions in 6, 1, and 2. And as you read that, what does it sound like the priority is for slaves and masters in the text at the end of verse 1? The name of God and the teaching. We look at those things, the value of those things to structure everything, even our conduct toward one another that cuts right across, transcends completely social distinctions, beloved. Those who were slaves were called by God to honor their masters with their attitude and their work. Why? Why be willing to take such a personal affront to your own life and your own personhood and your own rights? Because if Christianity became an excuse to disrespect your master, if Christianity became an excuse to slack off in your responsibilities, your master would have reason to think that this Christianity thing is a joke. It creates bad people. It's troublesome. It produces lazy, subversive, unproductive, difficult, rebellious, complaining people. So the God of Christianity would be thought to be facilitating all that. And so his name also gets reviled. Just like all the teaching of the church would also. What would it be considered? Well, that's the teaching. That's the way of lazy, disrespectful rebels. So Paul is saying, listen, our personal rights are not so important that they are worth bringing disrepute on God's name or the truth of the gospel. Well, what if you had a believing master as a slave in verse 2? Surely then you would be able to catch a little break. They're believers, so you shouldn't have to work as hard for them. They should be more understanding. They should ease up on you. No. Paul says, if that's the case, work even better. Work even harder for them. And more diligently and treat them more respectfully than you would an unbelieving master, beloved. We don't give Jesus time to be Jesus in the church, do we? Because his commands are crazy if he's not a great savior. Imagine that. Imagine hearing that in that state. They are part of the household of faith with you. And we treat one another better than we are to treat the world. And we're called to treat the world pretty good. But do you see what the Bible calls us to, beloved? There's patience, hesitation. Give each other the benefit of the doubt. Don't think the worst of each other right away based on whatever you hear. You know how much damage that has done? We hear one thing about somebody and we believe it. And we just take it and then we begin to treat them based on what we've heard. We do this to one another all the time. And Paul is saying, look, this is the last place on earth it should be like that. That's what the world is like. We aren't like that. That's what all this is saying. When we're the same way as them in those things... Right? It, it, it brings disrepute on the name of God. It brings disrepute on His teaching. When those who will benefit from a slave's work are part of their own family spiritually, he says, work with even more honor. In other words, Christians are not permitted to take advantage of one another because we're Christians. It's not the way of Christ. What does all this teach us? All these instructions to elders, to a congregation, to slaves... That nothing is more important in our lives than the name of God and the truth of his word. Nothing. God's instructions for the church exist so that all its members may be properly cared for. And so the value of his name and his truth will not be compromised. God's salvation does not lessen the dignity with which we treat other people. It enhances it. Think about it. Of course that's the way it is. God desires what for people? 
all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God deeply cares for people. So he teaches us to behave in such a way that the church and the God that church represents are very attractive to people through the way they treat each other. That's how important the witness of the church is. That's how devastating in a community a church divide or a church split or a church that is constantly at each other's throats is. It's ruining everything the church should care about. Nobody should care about themselves so much that they're willing to toss the church in the dump and its reputation to get their way. Right? The Bible is very clear about this. The household of God is a place of love and care and forgiveness and respect and organization and honor, beloved. Look at the instructions for elders here. The flock is to be shepherded by men who work hard for them. Men who labor in preaching and teaching. That'd be the only reason they're worthy of double honor. Not because this is a place characterized by clout and titles, but by love and care and faithfulness and service. So, of course, we would treat them fairly and give them the benefit of the doubt when accusations and complaints come. They're going to give an account to Jesus for the responsibility God has given them in the church. God seeks to create a relationship between elders and the congregation that's built on truth and patience and is sustained by the unchanging truth of His Word. So, of course, slaves then would honor their masters, and even more so if their masters are Christians. Imagine how that would look to a community where this was a huge part of the culture. All this is for the sake of God's name and the teaching of God's truth. We're called to live and we're called to a structure that adorn God, that adorn His message of salvation, that make God look like the gracious, strong, eternally caring Father that He is. Jesus wiping away for free all of our debt is meant to have a profound effect on us, mainly in the way we treat other people now that we know that's how we've been saved. What can you hold over a person's head in this life when God has been merciful to you and taken away your debt with no strings attached? What can you hold over other people's heads is what Paul is revealing here. The church is to be the beacon of light for the culture, not because the people in it are so pure and so great, but because they are the people who are pointing to God and His salvation, to His name and to His truth, to His grace and to His love and mercy. We say by these things, by behaving as the Bible calls us to, that our God is good for the world, that the the church contributes to a gracious and orderly society. Beloved, all because God's desire for this world is that people get saved. Is that what we're trying to say to the world, church? I know this is uncomfortable. But if lost people were to run down, say, our Facebook timeline, would they think we depend on Jesus right now or on Trump to save America? What would they believe? Would they notice about you a certain sense of respect and honor even for unbelievers. This is not easy. It's not what I mean. It's not what I mean. Would they hear of our affection for God's people, of our joy and hope and thanksgiving for God's salvation? Do the words of our mouths and the actions of our lives exalt His name and His truth, or really our names and our truth? Beloved, we need mercy. That's all I'm trying to drive at here. We need mercy all the time. We need grace. We need love from God all the time. We never stop being in need of it. I'm not asking you to commit to do something different with your Facebook timeline or something. I'm asking you to consider the mercy of God in your life and His grace, and I'll let the Holy Spirit deal with the rest of it. For me and you both, right? God has all those things in abundance for us right now, this morning. Mercy, grace, love. We live in strange times. The weight of the world is squeezing us. It's pressing in on us. 
We have every reason to panic and respond in fear with venom and exasperation, but we don't have to do that. The name and the truth mean that no matter what happens, we are safe and secure in Christ this morning. The name of God and the truth of his word mean that no matter what happens, God will be on his throne. The name and the truth mean that no matter who wins this next election, no matter which direction our great country goes, if school continues in person or goes to all virtual, if we contract this virus or not, beloved, we belong to God Almighty. Every moment of every day that we live on this earth and then forever in his arms. Take heart this morning. Look to Christ. By his name and his truth you are saved and nothing can separate you from his love. That is the truth. And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't survive. But beloved, all of this life is passing away. This world is passing away. The bad and the good. So look to Christ for your life is hidden with him in God and no one can snatch you from his hand. He is the only name that can save. He is the only truth that can save. And you are his this morning, beloved. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful this morning for your word your truth, God, and for your name. You are our Savior. You are the bread of life. You are living water. You are the great shepherd. Father, we come to you for all things. Lord, watch over our minds. Help us think clearly as we look at our world. Help us think humbly and graciously as we look at each other. Lord, take care of us. May our church honor you and be faithful to you in all things. Lord, I pray that you would shine your light on those who have heard this morning, on those that will hear, that all might believe and trust in you. And we ask and pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.